We've had an interesting week. We've uh, uh, we've been away with our extended leadership community at our National Leaders Conference uh, in Nottingham this week. Um, for those of you who don't know, we're part of a, a family of churches um, here across the UK and Ireland. It's about 116 vineyard churches scattered across this land. And um, once a year, the leaders from those various communities gather for our National Leaders Conference, which has been a a fun, packed week, um, and we've all come back exhausted. And um, but it was um, it was a little bit of a, a, a making history kind of week. Not only was it the biggest conference we've ever had, there was about one and a half thousand people uh, at the conference this year. But also uh, John and Ellie Mumford, who are our national directors, um, they announced that they're going to be transitioning. And so from September this year, John and Ellie, some of you may have seen them before at various things, but John and Ellie are going to be moving into sort of looking after the international vineyard. And so, uh, and encouraging what God's doing across the nations through this vineyard family. And, um, and they announced that John and Debbie Wright, who lead the Trent Vineyard, are going to be stepping into their shoes um, as from September. So that was a exciting news and some exciting developments in uh, the life of the church. We, we stuck a link up on Facebook. We'd encourage you to watch that video of just how they announced it on Wednesday evening. Just a real model of humility, you know, that John and Ellie have got this big responsibility and they just humbly uh, gave that over and uh, really inspiring. I'd really encourage you to watch that. So we've been doing a series over the last few weeks, exploring what it means to care for this thing we call the soul. And um, we've been doing lots of things to, to, to think about that. We, um, and we've been thinking about what, what is the soul? A fairly basic question. Um, what is this thing we call the soul? And uh, we've been using this quote from Dallas Willard, who... Um, wrote an interesting book about caring for the soul. He says, what is running your life at any given moment in time is your soul. It's not the external circumstances or your thoughts or your intentions or even your feelings. The thing that runs your life is your soul. The soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of a human being. And so a real basic definition of the soul is is it's the thing that makes you, you. Often we think the soul is some sort of ghostly apparition of ourselves that kind of lives on somewhere when we die. But actually the soul is, is more, more real than that. And we've also been thinking about how the ancient world thought about what we've called the anatomy of personhood. Uh, how the ancient world viewed the way, the different components that make up who we are. And so we said at, at, the, at the core of us is this thing we call the will. It's this thing that gives us the ability to choose. Um, the, and it's the thing that distinguishes us much from much else from creation. So um, in, 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 the, in the scriptures, uh, the, the, the will would often also be interpreted as the, the heart or the spirit of a person. And then we, we, then we looked at this idea that we also have a mind. And, and the mind is uh, a complex thing, isn't it? And the mind is more than just logical. Uh, the mind also carries our thoughts, 
and our emotions. And so all these things are combined. And sometimes when we allow our emotions to get the better of us, our mind can trick us and, and um, cause us to think things that aren't true. Uh, and then there's the body. And the body is this fleshy part of us that uh, is where the appetites and the and, and, and the habits exist. And, and actually, the body is meant to be subject to the will and the mind. But often, it's the other way around, isn't it? And the body takes over. Uh, our flesh gets the better of us. And, um, and, and that's where things like addiction, uh, you know, as we've been talking already, that's where addictions lie. And so also, we've just been thinking about what do we do to care for the soul, what some of the practices we can do. And so we talked about finding rest for our soul. And we talked about having contentment in our soul. This week, I want to change a gear a little bit and talk about the dark night of the soul. It's got nothing to do with Batman, okay? But the dark night of the soul. If you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Psalm 23? When you've got a limited amount of time and you're talking about the most famous portion of scripture, you might have to forgive me that we overrun. Um, but Psalm 23, let me read it to you and then we'll, we'll jump in. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in your house, the house of the Lord forever. So this phrase, the dark night, of the soul is really a phrase that talks about uh, a person who has hit rock bottom, okay? A person who has come to the, the end of themselves. They're, they're in a place of despair. I'm guessing we could at some stage all relate to this idea of having a dark night of the soul. And so the soul... Uh, is the place where we can experience great pain. It's, it's not the dark night of the mind or the dark night of the will, um, but the dark night of the soul. Now that phrase actually comes from uh, a monk from the 16th century, a guy called St. John of the Cross. And he was a reformer, a radical reformer, uh, which ultimately led to his imprisonment. And whilst he was in prison, he wrote his most famous work, The Dark Night of the Soul. And this book really captures what, what it means for God to shape us and, and form us, not out of the joy and the, the, the light of life, but actually from the disappointments, from the losses, from the pain, that, that often God uses those things to form us into the kinds of people we are becoming. And, and, and so when we look at this psalm, we see it's a psalm of David, this, this king of Israel who was once a shepherd. 
he was a shepherd who was in the family business and and so when he when he writes this psalm it's only fitting isn't it that he he uses some of the imagery that he that he understood and so he begins he says the lord is my shepherd i'll lack nothing the lord is my shepherd another translation would say i shall not be in want the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And as we've continued to unpack this theme of caring for the soul, ultimately what we've been doing is, 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 is recognizing that the source of our discontentment is God alone. The source of our pain, the source of uh, caring for our soul is found in God alone. That Jesus said, I am, in John, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. So the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Have you ever noticed there, it says, he makes me lie down kind of reminds me when we're trying to make our girls go to bed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this with children, but it's bedtime and they never actually ever want to go. Um, I love going to bed. I don't know about you. I just love it. But our girls, it doesn't matter how tired they are, and it can be sort of 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night, and they can be dog tired, and you say, come on, let's go to bed. And they're like, no, I want to play. You know, because um, that's what kids are like, aren't they? They they don't like being told it's time to go to bed. But actually, as good parents, we do actually put our kids to bed at a sensible time. And uh, when when we put them to bed, we make them go to bed. You know, we we kind of staple them in, and um, <laughs> we don't really. Okay, um, we 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 put them. <laughs> We make them lie down. We make them lie down because it's for their benefit. Yeah, they, they need that regular consistency of a bedtime. They need that rhythm in their lives, whether they believe us or not. And believe me, if they don't get that rhythm, we pay. <laughs> um, grumpy children. But yeah, um, and so there's this imagery that God, he, sometimes he makes us lie down. Sometimes we get to the very end of ourselves and he forces us to lie down. He forces us to that place. He says, no more despair, no more striving, no more pain, no more agony. Just lie down. Lie down. Let me, let me meet you in that place. But he makes us lie down in, in pastures of green. And Matthew 21 Actually, Jesus alludes to the fact that we, we can either do that willingly or unwillingly. Matthew, Matthew 21 and verse 34, slightly out of context, but he says, fall on the rock and be broken, or the rock will fall on you and grind you to dust. Which one do you want? <laughs> Which one would you like? But either way, whether it's willing or unwillingly, we need, sometimes God will use the brokenness we face, to, to experience all that he wants to do. Then verse 
Verse 3 and 4, he says, He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, David makes it really clear here that even though this is the dark valley, even though this is the dark season of his life, it's God's rod and staff that brings comfort. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about the metaphor that he's using here, but this, this metaphor of a rod sometimes has a, like a little bit of a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? You know, this, this idea that a shepherd has a rod that beats sheep. Um, and, and so we kind of have this imagery that that's what God is doing. But actually, that isn't what a rod was. A shepherd would have a rod, and, and, and what would happen is the shepherds would be trained to use this rod to beat off attackers and predators. And, and, and they became like shepherding ninjas. You know, they, they, would, they would beat off the, the, any walls or bears that might want to come and attack the sheep. And so that's what the rod was for. It was a rod of protection. And then we have the staff. The staff is a kind of a long stick with a hook on it. And, 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 and actually, this, this was used to, to bring the sheep back into the flock. So if, if a shepherd was moving the sheep and, and one, of them was, one of them was to wander off, then he would grab the, the, the staff and hook it around the front of their legs and, and pull them back into the flock. And you see, what this rod and this staff represents is, 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 is God's protection, but also God's direction. Okay, so so it's, not, it's not negative, and, and maybe we see that in a different light. And David says, even though I walk through this, this valley of death, even though I am experiencing this dark night, night of the soul, I know that God is there. He's protecting me, and he's directing me. How many of us have experienced a season in our life where things are painful, things are stressful, and we get through the other side and we think, I don't know how I got through that. I don't know how I made it through the other side. But now I've made it, I can see there's so much more. That's the mystery of God's guidance and protection, isn't it? That's the mystery of his rod and stuff there to, to comfort us. David also says, even though... I walk through the dark valley. There's this idea that this is not forever. He's not walking through this valley forever, but he's walking through it. He's walking through it. And so the, the comfort that we can get from this is that when, when, when we experience these times, these dark moments of the soul, which are necessary, which God uses to form us and shape us, when we experience them, it's only for a moment. It's only for a short period of time. It's not forever. And every day that we experience that dark night, it's one less day than it was yesterday. That there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It says, even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And this is this is kind of weird because it changes here. It starts off the Lord is my the Lord is my shepherd, talking about God in the third person, and then 
and, 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 then he, and then he says, but you're with me. He didn't say the Lord is with me. He says, you're with me. I don't know if you've ever noticed that when things are going great, it's easy, isn't it, to like, praise God. God's wonderful. He's amazing. And we talk about him like that. When things are going bad, it sometimes gets a bit more personal. And we're like, God, are you here? Are you really here? Are you amongst us? God, are you really near? There's this picture of intimacy that takes place when we enter into dark periods in our lives. And then we get to verse 5. We're flying through this, aren't we? Um, Five minutes. We get to verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's kind of a weird verse, isn't it? Kind of not sure what to make of this. How do we respond to this? What does it mean? Well, in these times, when, when two nations went to war, the opposing nation, you know, the, the nation or the army that won, uh, they would find the highest ranking official. Could be a general, a king, and they would take them to the, the center of resource in the, in the people that they had defeated. And they would, they would tie into a chair, and then they would squander the resources of those they had captured in front of them. It's almost like they rub in their noses in it. And so they would feast themselves on, on the, the enemy that they had, had defeated. So what is, what is God saying? What is, what is, what's being said that God will do? And that he, ultimately, that he will take the work of the enemy in our lives... And he'll lay out a feast before him and rub his nose in it. And there's this, this idea that often the enemy comes into our lives and, and wants to steal and, and take from us and, and remove from us. But God's promised that's not going to happen. That's, that's, that's not going to happen. What the enemy intends for bad God always makes good. What the enemy uses to tear down, God always builds up. One story in the Old Testament that, that really highlights this is the, the story of Joseph. That, that Joseph is the, the least of his brothers, and his brothers sell him into slavery. And then all these years later, he's promoted to become prime minister of Egypt. And then there's a famine in the land, and his brothers come to this prime minister. And um, he says this to them in Genesis 50. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for the good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, what the, atten- uh, the enemy attends in terms of harming us, God intends for good. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Now, how many times have we seen that to be true? How many times can we look back over our lives and see some of the pain, some of the suffering, 
and realize God has worked a miracle. What was intended to harm me, God has worked out for the good. You know, if you used to ask someone who, who refuses to trust the Lord, who, who doesn't believe in God, why they object, I, my guess is one of their number one reasons would be because of suffering. Most people say, I don't believe in God because there's too much suffering. And if you used to ask someone who does believe in God, how have they grown the most spiritually? I think they would probably say the same thing. Because of suffering. Because of pain. Because of disappointments. Because things haven't always gone the way I hoped. But the, the thing is, our story of pain, God turns into a story of healing. Our story of brokenness becomes a story of beauty. Our, our story of defeat becomes a story of victory. God turns the tables. And he does this by preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. What the enemy intends to harm, God works out for the good. So even though we walk through the dark valley, even though we experience the dark nights of the soul, David says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this isn't when the suffering's all over. This isn't, you know, when I finally got out the other side, but it's now. It's in the midst of it. I'm going to experience the fullness of God's presence. I'm going to experience God's goodness and mercy. God's mercy is tracking me down. It's like a hand. It's, it's coming after me. In the midst of my pain, in the midst of my suffering, God is pursuing me with his goodness. He's pursuing me with his mercy, with his love. And some of us have a huge sense of brokenness, don't we? Some of us are going through pain, disappointment. Some of us are grieving losses. Hebrews 6, and verse 19, it says this. It says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And so you might be pacing pain. You might be experiencing disappointment. You might be grieving a loss that's unbearable. But you don't have to face it without hope. You don't have to deal with that without the hope that he brings. It's a hope that anchors the very core of who we are to a living God. A hope that anchors us to something that's true and real and tangible. See, the place of our soul is the place where we feel the most pain. 
And there's lots of ways that we can respond to that. But I just, I just felt as as I was preparing for today, and um, that was last night because I was away all week. But as I was preparing, some of us, some of us just need to find rest for our soul. Some of us just need to find a place of rest in him. And, and one of the challenges in this has been to just carve out space in our lives where we're finding opportunities to rest. Not to do anything, not to, to be anything, but just to be in God's presence. And some of us need to continue to learn to do that. And some of you, are just you know you're in that dark valley. You know you're facing a dark night of the soul. And you just need reassurance that his rod and his staff are there to comfort you. You just need to know that those things are there, that God will comfort you. And some of you are just in pain. Some of you are suffering. Some of you are dealing with disappointments. And you're still not sure God's in it. But he wants to meet you there. He wants to meet you in your place of suffering. He wants to meet you in those disappointments. Where the pain is. Maybe it's rejection. Maybe it's someone just completely destroying your character. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a loss because things are are changing around you and it all feels out of control. Maybe it's a sense of just unrest that you can see there's a new season ahead but you just can't break through. But the cry of your heart is, God, I've not seen you in this yet. I'm not sure you're there and I need to know. I need to know. So why don't don't we stand?